You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. Approximately 50 million surgeries of all types are performed annually within the United States, with 80% of those patients reporting post-surgical pain. Acute post-surgical pain management that is suboptimal can lead to numerous consequences such as impaired physical function, quality of life, prolonged opioid use during and after hospitalization, and ultimately increased cost of care. Pharmacists have important roles in incorporating a multimodal approach to pain management, with current and emerging non-opioid therapy options for reducing post-operative pain. This podcast will explore non-opioid treatment options and equip pharmacists with information necessary to enhance clinical decision-making to optimize post-operative care, patient safety, quality of life, and overall outcomes. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, I'm excited to come back to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. These have been tremendously valuable. We have received lots of feedback from our listeners and thank you so much in Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn. Thank you for your feedback and what you feel is needed and the suggestions that you've made for the PTCE Pharmacy Connect. This is an important episode. We're gonna be talking about the adequate post-operative pain control, which is needed to facilitate successful patient recovery. Pain management is a huge opportunity for pharmacists in health system pharmacy, community pharmacy, and even specialty. Traditionally, opioids have been used to manage pain, but due to the growing opioid epidemic, recent efforts have targeted a reduction in the usage of opioid prescribing and supported a multimodal approach to analgesia. Pharmacists can use their expertise to play a large role and analgesia to help reduce opioid utilization and improve pain management. Today, we're gonna be focusing on post-operative pain management strategies that give you an update on new therapies in this space. I'm excited to welcome, first time on PTCE Pharmacy Connect in the Pharmacy Podcast, Dr. Jawad Saleh. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for having me. Thank you, uh, PTCE and Pharmacy Times. I'm excited to be here. So let's get started discussing the scope of surgical procedures and opioids use statistics in the United States. And can you shed some additional light on this? Sure. Well, post-operative pain management is a significant contributor to the opioid crisis. So, you know, um, you may hear... um, uh, you know, conflicting information going on, but nationally, uh, post-surgical pain and post-operative pain management has uh, been a struggle. The U.S. accounts for less than 5% of the world's population, but consumes more than 80% of its opioids. So that's, that's pretty huge if you look at it in a broad perspective here. Surgeons alone are responsible for over 10% of all opioids prescribed in the U.S. And of all the patients that report post-operative pain, 
88% report at least moderate levels of pain. So moderate levels, if you look at NRS scores, aren't that great. That's when you'd have to initiate some sort of uh, pharmacological uh, PRN treatment. Despite advances over the last several decades in surgical techniques, we've tried moderate severe surgical pain um, regimens and techniques. It continues to be a widespread and unresolved healthcare problem. So according to Brummett, uh, study, rates of new persistent opioid use were approximately 6% after minor and major surgeries. Um, and the Epic Health, uh, uh, and although we have improvement, right, there's been improvement since 2017 with post-operative pain uh, opioid prescribing, uh, we've seen a decline, but uh, it's still an issue. The Epic Health Research Network analysis of nearly half a million common surgeries performed at 87 U.S. hospitals found that uh, the number of opioid pills prescribed for patients decreased by 50% since 2017. To be transparent, the surgeries included in that study were low-risk arthroscopic or laparoscopic surgeries in which small incisions were made and patients sent home the same day. So you got to look at that type of data and what type of surgeries they were looking at. Although opioid prescribing after same-day surgeries decreased by 50% for those from 2017 to 2020 uh, needs to be reduced even more to meet the, the treatment guidelines established by John Hopkins University. For example, a patient recovering from a rotator cuff surgery should only get about 20 oxycodone pills according to that guideline, which recommends that ibuprofen also be used for pain relief. So application of ERAS, which is the Enhanced Recovery After Surgery Protocols, education, uh, multimodal order sets, uh, new medications and techniques, these opioid stewardship committees, hopefully that are rising throughout the country, and these quality initiatives all contribute to that decrease. Um, and the Michigan Open, which is the Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network launched in 2016, created procedure-specific specific, um, prescribing recommendations. So although we are getting better, this is still a struggle, Todd. Thank you, Dr. Saleh, for setting the stage for this opening of this discussion. This is so important. It's so interesting that your pain scale and how you feel about something that happened, you broke your foot, you had surgery, compared to mine, compared to anyone's, it's so different. There's such a, a difference in, in one person being able to have a higher pain threshold versus another. And it's up to the physician, the team, the pharmacist to really help manage that it doesn't turn into an addiction issue. And then all of a sudden, I throw on top of you, Dr. Soleil, the COVID epidemic. I mean, goodness gracious, I, my heart goes out to all of you healthcare providers. You're, you're champions. You're really the true heroes in all of this. What kind of impact has COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic caused for surgical procedures and pain management? That's a good question. So several challenges emerged during the COVID-19 pandemic um, for pain physicians. And I'm going to go back and forth with uh, a COVID surge. If, if you get that increased uh, frequency or population of COVID patients coming in and critically ill patients versus just um, for looking at it from a general perspective. So um, during a COVID surge, post-operative pain management challenges that I've even seen personally, opioid, uh, prescribed, opioids are prescribed for longer periods pre-surgery as procedures are delayed, which happens. Greater need to expedite post-op recovery and discharge. You want to get these patients out fast. Um, 
Greater need for patients to recover at home as COVID-19 may limit discharges to post-acute care facilities. Uh, a lot of these post-acute uh, care facilities were blocking the transfers over at that time. Visitor restrictions interfere with incorporating caregivers in educational and discharge processes. At times, you have to um, educate the patient on discharge instructions. That was very difficult. Um, in cases where they had caregivers. Uh, new cleaning processes increase turnaround time and may mean fewer procedures done per day. And then what about minimal exposure? What have we done? Minimal patient interaction. Uh, help, the, help nursing and medical staff avoid going into the patient room to give pain medications because we want to decrease that frequency of going in and out. The medications were bundled to about two times per day or three times per day. So everything is given um, in less frequency, less frequent pharmacy deliveries to these COVID units, less automated medication dispenser pain medication refills. So we try to fill those machines as much as we can. Reducing pneumatic tube system usage. Uh, they need to be properly sanitized when going back and forth and trying to cut down on physical delivery runs by uh, the actual uh, pharmacy tech or whoever's doing the deliveries and telemedicine and virtual visits um, are on the rise. And there are some pros and cons and some of the cons are difficulty using the neurological exams are not being done and et cetera. Other things to keep in mind are surge shortages, which are hospital-wide. Pain medications, those that are listening that are in the field know that we've had a ton of shortages, difficulty getting them, and we had to get very creative. And pumps, I mean, some of these patients that were intubated required an average of four pumps. Any possible way to reduce the amount of infusions um, is important. Limited options. Um, ketamine, you know, we have a bunch of really cool drugs for pain uh, in this multimodal approach, and we were having issues. So ketamine with some of these, again, intubated patients, you know, either whether it was K-hole mucosal plugs when they were on long-term infusions. Uh, NSAIDs, which are one of the most effective therapies for acute pain, um, are great to use. But in some of these cases, patients were in renal sufficiency, and we had to avoid them as well. Acetaminophen and transaminitis, specifically if you're on propofol for long-term, propofol-related infusion syndrome and hepatotoxicity. So we had to avoid uh, acetaminophen in those scenarios. And uh, opioids, you know, as you know, affect respiratory rate and risk for post-op ileus. Lastly, one thing to consider that many of us listening probably we're not aware of is the immune system and the interaction between pain medications and the immune system and untreated pain. If you, if the patient's in, in, in excruciating pain, it affects the immune system uh, by inducing immunosuppression in some patients. Pain treatments, oral or injected steroids, for example, induce secondary adrenal insufficiency that alter the immune response. And this specifically in spine cases, because we utilize dexamethasone to reduce inflammation. And then opioids in general decrease natural killer cells in dose-dependent manner and therefore associated with the progression of infectious disease. So, you know, you could go down the list and look at what opioids do when it comes to the immune system um, and their effect on the innate and acquired immune responses. Um, so keep that in mind uh, as this can affect patients that are, you know, COVID positive or extremely sick in the hospital or in the ICU setting. Dr. Soleil, it sounds like there are so many different opportunities for the barriers to giving the right type of treatment for the specific patient based on their pain threshold or what operation they went through or, or wh what contact that they're having with even 
family members or uh, others that are coming into their um, into their rooms, and it and it's it's like another complexity that's placed in front of our health system pharmacists. And I think of going back to what we know as evidence-based practice and the guidelines that help to guide um, a fellow pharmacist out there. Can you talk about the guidelines for surgical pain management? Um, briefly, how is pain managed in the, in the OR? Sure. In February of 2016, the Journal of Pain published post-operative pain management guidelines, um, which was a consensus a clinical practice guideline from the American Pain Society, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, the American Society of Anesthesiologists Committee on Regional Anesthesia, Executive Committee and Administrative Council. They all got together and created this um, uh, pain management guideline, uh, post-operative pain management guideline. And although it's dated, the guideline contains really good information about non-opioid management. And we talk about multimodal a little later, but NSAIDs, neuraxial versus regional anesthesia, IV lidocaine, ketamine, acetaminophen. So for the sake of time, um, you should take time out to look into this, uh, into the non-opioid management options discussed in that guideline on your own as listeners. Uh, it's pretty extensive. Um, we're not going to get into that now, although because this is a 30-minute podcast, um, but definitely something you should look into. Uh, also, the EROS protocols, you know, they're multimodal perioperative care pathways designed to achieve early recovery after surgical procedures by maintaining pre-op organ function and reducing the profound stress response from surgery. And this is becoming very common. Pharmacists are getting highly involved in this. And so EROS, uh, E-R-A-S, for those that are new to the pain game that don't know much about it, um, it's becoming a, a new uh wave of protocols, fairly new, that pharmacists should be involved in when it comes to the multimodal approach. Uh, these new EROS guidelines have been published for almost every type of surgery since 2016. So utilize um, this as a guideline when managing pain for respective surgical types in the institution. If there is an EROS protocol and your, your patients fit that criteria mentioned by that guideline, you should be utilizing it. Um, also, the role of local regional anesthetics in post-operative surgical pain, not taught in most pharmacy programs, pharmacists need to learn and understand the nerve blocks, periarticular injections, and local infiltration installation to fully understand intraoperative pain management. Again, we learn about pre-op, post-op, IV bags, infusions, uh, tablets, um, but we never really get into these nerve blocks that are done, and, and it's honestly knowing about that can help with the full, the full circle of pain, pain management. Local anesthetics made it possible to perform many surgical procedures quickly with less preparation and shorter recovery time. General anesthesia and anesthesia that sedates you could cause a lot of side effects such as nausea. Um, and a physician anesthesiologist must monitor you if you are administered these types of anesthesia. So during that procedure and for a time afterward, however, local anesthesia, unlike general, the side effects are reduced and complications are rare. Um, an epidural anesthetic, often referred to as an epidural, is where a local anesthetic is continuously injected through a tube into an area with the lower back called the epidural space, which is common in pregnancy. Uh, and a spinal anesthetic is a single injection into that space. So understanding the difference between regional anesthesia, uh, peripheral, which is peripheral neuraxial blocks, versus general anesthesia is huge. So, um, so going into that, 
uh, when you break it down, peripheral neuraxial blocks, again, you could read about this more after this podcast, understanding that's the spinal versus epidural, which is neuraxial. We use bupivacaine, ropivacaine, mepivacaine, and chloroprocaine uh, for fast, if you want a patient uh, for quick procedures. Local nerve blocks, bupivacaine, lidocaine, and examples of different types of blocks for total knee replacement, hip or spine. Um, you can, uh, you know, adductor for knees, uh, IPAC for knees, the peng and sapphire for total hip and spine general plus ESP or tap blocks. And one thing as pharmacists to know, the name of the game is try to extend that nerve block to help that patient postoperatively. So they receive less opioids after surgery. Um, and some medications they use are preservative free dexamethasone, epinephrine for infiltration and clonidine. And surgeons love periarticular joint injections. Uh, installation, distillation, and infiltration are terms you should also be familiar with. What about the pharmacist's role in optimizing multimodal analgesia and opioid management, uh, Dr. Soleil? Well, this is when we, uh, you know, we, we play a big part. So the first, you know, opioid stewardship committee, if you don't have one, you should have one. If, you know, uh, you should create one. Pharmacists should not be on the back burner with this committee. Um, we should take a leadership role, whether it's DUEs, metrics to follow, dashboards, MME thresholds, uh, education order sets, evidence-based data collections. I mean, this is where we take a huge lead. Um, emphasize pharmacists' role in pre-periop uh, setting and transitions of care. Make safe and effective plans um, that have patient input. It's a joint commission recommendation, by the way. Medication review and adjustment for EROS order sets, as we discussed before. So you have to be a, a stronger champion or leader in this committee here. So what does current pain management and prevention look like? What's the efficacy of current non-opioid agents uh, used in intra-post-op pain management and ongoing? Well, the current intraoperative non-opioid multimodal agents, we want to go multimodal, different, different uh, pharma, pharmacology, different angles we want to hit with pain. NSAIDs are the safe and effective, most, they're very safe, very effective treatment in postoperative pain administered, uh, administered uh, in all post-op surgical patients unless it's contraindicated. And you, if you go through the literature, uh, shown to increase patient satisfaction and decrease opioid requirements, minimizing opioid-induced adverse events. Just keep in mind with renal sufficiency and increased bleed. Ketorolac is one of the number one uh, NSAIDs utilized perioperatively um, because it's given, it comes in an injection form, PO and IM. Uh, it's, but keep in mind, again, Ketorolac is, has a lot of COX-1, kidney injury and increased bleed again. COX-2 inhibitors, meloxicam, celecoxib, which are used frequently preoperatively and postoperatively, um, and again, safer when it comes to renal and bleed. Uh, so uh, those are extremely common. Um, and gesso isn't that common. It's just a new agent I wanted to mention here because uh, it is an IV formulation of meloxicam, uh, and it uses a nanocrystal technology to improve solubility to allow IV administration. So it's given once a day um, and it's been studied um, and, and they have an in vitro platelet assay uh, still, to, still to be determined if less bleed exists versus traditional uh, NSAIDs. So studies are currently being done. Acetaminophen, another fairly safe medication, reduces central inflammatory response to surgery as well as pain. Again, caution in patients with transaminitis or 
or, or a hepatic insufficiency, especially after giving one gram Q6 for more than 72 hours. Dexmetomidine, which is pre Presidex, uh, plays an analgesic and adjuvant role in multiple mechanisms. It's a it's it's great. Uh, it's a great addition to local anesthetics. Uh, promising new avenue to enhance their effectiveness. Highly selective alpha-2 adrenergic agonist, which has become a valuable addition to the multimodal approach to anesthesia. And this is becoming a very common drug, especially when it went generic and, and become cheaper. Sedative, anxiolytic, and analgesic properties, all three. Um, and it makes it very useful, again, to be using in this type of setting. Ketamine is another drug, significantly effective in controlling postoperative pain. It's gaining a lot of momentum. Um, again, it, it, you, it's an NMDA inhibitor. Uh, it's uh, better on blood pressure, less respiratory and sedative effects. Um, so keep that in mind and less um, uh, opioid-related PONV when utilizing that. Expirel which is uh, a bupivacaine liposomal injectable suspension, single dose infiltration, interscaling brachial plexus block. It uses a deeper foam technology. Uh, supplementation with immediate release bupivacaine is one of its downsides and efficacy beyond 24 hours is still controversial and it's pretty expensive. And then a newer medication that was approved is Zinrelief, which is bupivacaine meloxicam, meloxicam in an extended release solution. Uh, the difference is it's not a deeper foam, it's a biochronomer polymer. Uh, it's FDA approved for 72 hours of post-surgical setting. It's not a nerve block, it's given as installation right into the wound. So see that these are some of the agents that we are using in the post-operative setting. Um, and um, hopefully the more agents that do come out safe and efficacious can help with the multimodal approach. Dr. Soleil, this is just a shout out to pharmacists out there listening right now that this is such an important part of healthcare and medication management. Pharmacists are the experts in medications. The impact that those medications have for treatments and being part of the um, healthcare team. I'm so proud of pharmacists and what, what they've done. And I think as you were talking of the experience that you've had to uh, see patient after patient after patient in order to make the slightest adjustments to treatments for one patient versus another. Therein lies why when I hear artificial intelligence talk and when I hear big data, that it's never gonna replace the pharmacist who's in front of holding the hand of a patient, understanding based on past experience what that patient could be going through and what they're going through and i think of the multiple therapies that are going to be uh, needed and are going to be needed to be adjusted based on the specific patient and the pharmacist knowledge so proud of this thank you so much dr soleil so how are these therapies used together in practice could you give us a couple examples Sure, you, you should have a protocol in place uh, for perioperative, uh, pre-op, peri, and post-operative. Specific ERAS protocols, again, um, emphasizing ERAS protocols being involved, and preoperative agents versus intraoperative agents versus postoperative agents, and exactly what we're using for what type of procedure and which patients fit that criteria. Really important, create those order sets, create those policies and guidelines, and be highly involved in your opioid stewardship program. The newest agent you described is meloxicam in combination with bubivacaine. These therapies are also currently available separately. Can you tell us more about the rationale for this combination? 
when it comes to the actual surgical site and not systemically. Um, you know, there is an efficacy gap that exists specifically with, you know, installation or with some of these nerve blocks on a different note. Um, and so the majority of pain and inflammation exists in the first 72 hours after surgery. And that's where a lot of the pain comes from. So in regard to installation and duration of the analgesic, the biggest issue is the acidic environment around the nerve. It leads to an increased hydrogen ions and they bind to bupivacaine. And this ionized bupivacaine is unable to penetrate that nerve membrane. So the name of the game is if you're hydrogizing bupivacaine and it's not crossing the nerve barrier, it's not going to last too long. So how do you cut down these hydrogen ions? So when they were sampling different medications in combination with bupivacaine, meloxicam's addition to this from an installation perspective, normalized the pH, which decreased the hydrogen ions. And what did that do? It left a lot of free unionized bupivacaine to cross that nerve barrier and last longer. The presence of meloxicam is intended to reduce local inflammation, again, normalizing that pH and allow the enhanced penetration of bupivacaine into the nerve, thereby potentiating that effect of bupivacaine. And um, it said that this mechanism is believed um, is what helped uh, that bupivacaine last longer, uh, 72 hours. What about some clinical trial information regarding this? The contribution of each active ingredient demonstrated in the phase two double-blind randomized active and placebo-controlled clinical trial uh, in subjects undergoing two types of surgeries, herinorphy and bunionectomy, they utilized both bupivacaine and meloxicam, uh, meloxicam formulations and um, meloxicam alone or bupivacaine alone in the vehicle, that biochrome polymer. In both studies, meloxicam alone demonstrated negligible local analgesia and bupivacaine alone demonstrated greater analgesia compared with placebo through 24 hours post-surgery, despite exposure to bupivacaine for approximately 72 hours. So what does that mean? Compared with bupivacaine alone in both studies, at the same bupivacaine doses, uh, bupivacaine meloxicam demonstrated greater and longer analgesia through both 24, 48, and 72 hours. Um, so validating the negligible analgesic component of meloxicam and its direct effect on bupivacaine duration of efficacy, meloxicam CMAX in phase three studies were 37 nanograms per ml and 181 with a CMAX of uh, 1,050, which again, shows the negligible analgesic components. Some of the indications and administration considerations, bupivacaine and meloxicam is indicated in adults for soft tissue or periarticular installation to produce post-surgical analgesia for up to 72 hours after bunionectomy, open inguinal herinorphy, and total knee arthroplasty, and the, those indications were expanded recently. It's a syrup honey consistency. It's drawn into a syringe and poured right into the wound after suction and irrigation right before closing. The nerve block is still allowed before, but local anesthetic is prohibited 96 hours after due to concerns for last overdosing on a local anesthetic leading to toxicities. Um, this is an FDA statement to avoid uh, the chance of toxicity. Uh, NSAIDs like Ketorolac can still be given intraoperatively because uh, the meloxicam level is negligible. 
Um, and data for all three indications shows benefit for reduction in opioid use. So the safety profile is very similar to bupivacaine. Contraindications to NSAIDs or local anesthetics apply. Contraindicated in cabbage procedures, highly vascular surgeries, and those undergoing obstetrical periarticular uh, block anesthesia. It's a lot to take in, but it's, uh, it's good to understand why there's synergy and what this is used for. Thanks for so much of that information, Dr. Soleil. I'm wondering what other immersion agents are there and what should pharmacists know about them? Um, there's a couple of agents that are coming out uh, or in the works. Uh, there's VVZ149. It's a dual antagonist of GLI-T2 and 5-HT2A. Uh, the reduction in nociceptor activation peripheral nerves is important in the post-surgical pain setting because it's primary. It's one of the primary sources of pain. So VVZ149 has been shown to have comparable efficacy to morphine in well-controlled, which is blind, complete randomization with a positive control, animal studies using rat models of post-operative pain and um, formalin-induced pain. So a clinical phase one study was performed with this in healthy subjects, and it's shown no clinical significant adverse events up to a plasma concentration level of 3,261 nanograms per ml, other than brief symptoms of mild nausea or dizziness and mild somnolence when the plasma exposure level is more than 2,000. Uh, a clinical phase two trial is uh, being performed um, in laparoscopic and gastrectomy patients shown, uh, it showed that patients who received VVZ149 had reduced opioid use consumption after surgery compared to those who received placebo without any significant drug-related adverse events. Several phase three investigate, uh, trials investigating the efficacy and safety of VVZ149 for post-op pain following surgery, such as uh, colectomy, bunionectomy, and abdenoplasty are still ongoing, so let's stay tuned for that. There is another drug or ingredient, ATX101, a novel configuration of an intracellular sodium ion channel blocker, bupivacaine, and a biopolymer that has been designed to provide weeks of pain relief following total knee arthroplasty. Um, so when, imp when, when implanted during total knee arthroplasty surgery, um, this ATX101 is designed to release half of the suspended bupivacaine over the first few days to avoid breakthrough pain and then uh, issue less and less of the painkiller as the, as the patient recovers. It's placed at the end of standard surgery in minutes to deliver its analgesic effect over weeks before dissolving into water and carbon dioxide over a long period. Summary outcomes from the phase 1B and 2A clinical study of ATX101 demonstrated sustained pain relief lasting at least two weeks, yes, two weeks, with significant outperformance of historical pain relief scores provided by other approaches following a total knee arthroplasty. Across all clinical and preclinical studies, ATX101 appears to be well tolerated with minimal systemic exposure with no serious adverse effects. Uh, I can't wait to get some more data on that. All right, let's spend some time to dig down and discuss the pharmacist's role in optimizing medication use in patient transitions of care after surgery and what recommendations or clinical pearls you have for our listeners. Well, first off, I'd like to talk about 
where pharmacists play a role in the committees. You got your opioid stewardship, which might be mandated by the Joint Commission relatively soon. And then you have your PNT committee uh, monitoring formulary management. From the administrative standpoint, your director, your senior director, um, they like to look at cost storage and handling of the medication. So understanding that whose role, you know, what, what, what each role emphasizes and what they look into. The clinical pharmacist focus uh, like to look at evidence-based data some more and fact-finding collections, medication alternatives or comparisons to what's coming on, limited opioid order set where you can create an order set that guides the prescriber um, to more of a multimodal approach and limiting opioids, morphine equivalent thresholds and interventions, journal clubs, new alternatives, in-services, education to the hospital staff, and an integral part of the rounding team, whether it's critical care, medicine, acute chronic pain service. Uh, when you look at acute post-operative pain management considerations across different settings, inpatient versus outpatient. Is, is important to know because the medication and the half-life is important in this scenario, whether it's the half-life of the nerve blocks and sedatives, uh, ambulatory settings prefer short acting, which is similar to the outpatient setting, uh, route of administration, minimize risk for addiction, sedation and adverse events. And then important pharmacy clinical outcomes are typically length of stay, reduction in opioid related adverse events, Time to ambulation, PT session, and compliance. Um, readmission for uncontrolled pain. These are things we like to look at, although length of stay is pretty tough to, uh, to prove. In my opening, Dr. Soleil, I was saying how important pain management is, especially today where we have more data showing us how to avoid uh, addiction and, um, and really understanding the type of uh, surgery or the type of condition or something that happened to the patient and in what best treatment um, modality to, to go towards and pathway to go towards. When I think of building the summary for our listeners, final question, what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacist listeners today? Um, status quo is never enough. Existing in the background isn't enough. Our voices, pharmacists, always, it, it, we must be heard. Nobody in the healthcare setting has more expertise and training in regards to these medications than us. If, if, if you do not have an opioid stewardship, stewardship committee or something similar, at the end of this podcast, please begin creating one. Pharmacists should be effective champions on this committee. We've discussed that before. Joint, joint commission will ask you, what have you done to lower opioid use? Be prepared to have numerous examples of how your department has been working on improving this. Don't be timid. Don't be hesitant. We're the best at what we do. So remain cutting edge, remain innovative, and continue to help patients day in and day out. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Pharmacy Times, for having me. Thank you. Dr. Soleil, that was inspiring. Um, it's a standing ovation from me and the Pharmacy Podcast Network. The voice of the pharmacist is so important in so many facets of healthcare, health system, community, specialty disease states, compounding, long-term care pharmacy. Sometimes it's the pharmacist that is the acting voice of the patient 
in protecting the patient in ongoing therapies, especially here in pain management. Dr. Soleil, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much. A shout out to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Thank you for the dedication that you've made to podcasting and giving our pharmacists a great way of consuming continuing education via podcast. PTCE is committed to forwarding and advancing the pharmacist mission and role in healthcare. Please go to Pharmacy Times. Uh, please go to PharmacyTimes.org for all of your uh, continuing education. And if you Google PTCE Pharmacy Connect, you'll find several ways to getting to all of the podcasts that the PTCE Pharmacy Connect team has put together. And pharmacists, shout out to you. You are my favorite providers and what you're doing during this uh, crazy time in our history through the pandemic. And we salute you. If there's anything that we can ever do, please reach out to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.